Arthur Belpert and Tiwana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance. It's the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest. And on this edition of the program, as it is every week, Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball. Of particular note this week, following a dominant start against the formidable Chicago Cubs, Jose Fernandez now finds himself 24-1 and overall at Marlins Park. Win-loss record, of course, is of limited utility. However, what it does do, what Fernandez's accomplishment does do, is to remind me to ask Dave Cameron about the current state of research and home field advantage. Why does it exist? And also, why does it not exist to the degree that it does in professional basketball and football? The listener will likely be nonplussed when I inform him or her that Nate Fryman formerly of the Oakland A's, hit a home run for the Portland Sea Dogs on Sunday. But it does lead to a question of some interest, perhaps. Why would a relatively progressive organization such as the Boston Red Sox deploy a 29-year-old with very likely a limited major league career in his future? Why would they deploy him at first base for their double-A affiliate? What is the wisdom at play there, I asked Cameron. Finally, during the course of this conversation, Cameron supplies a shocking revelation in a series of shocking revelations in this particular case that the authors of Fangraphs are not clairvoyant. We didn't think the Diamondbacks were going to be that good this year, but we didn't actually know. We can't predict the future. That newsworthy admission and others like it in the program that follows. But first, a message from our sponsor. The sponsor is SeatGeek, SeatGeek.com. How do you feel about work and hassle as a question? A question which I will answer for you. You are not for it. You are against it. That being the case, you might consider availing yourself of SeatGeek and its services. What they do is to aggregate Available tickets, available at a number of sites, into one place so that anyone looking for a sports or concert ticket is given the best chances of finding the best value. One feature they offer is SeatGeek will assess a grade based on the value of a ticket so that it's possible to find undervalued seats to exploit the inefficiencies of the ticket buying market, as it were, so that we at home too can feel like Billy Bean felt. Best of all, SeatGeek is always honest about ticket prices. They never assess mysterious fees at the beginning or the end of the transaction, or I've been led to believe in the middle either, unlike StubHub. And for having endured this sponsor's message, listeners of Fangraph Saudi are treated to a $20 rebate. Here's how to claim it. You download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, enter the promo code Fangraphs, that's F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter the promo code FANGRAPHS today or at your nearest possible convenience with which utterance completed the sponsor's message and nearly this introduction. What is it? It is FANGRAPHS Audio. Who does it feature? Managing editor of FANGRAPHS, Dave Cameron. When does it begin? Right now. doesn't uh drop out like it did the last couple weeks sure what happened uh my internet's just being weird oh oh i see you're using it today specifically as a hotspot yeah instead of using my home wi-fi i'm using my phone right well you'll be leaving that home soon enough won't you i will but i'll be taking my phone with me right but not your presumably there'll be different isp there uh true yes there's a bend broadband which you know is as well received as every other cable company i think yeah yeah. You're not going to do DSL? No, no. Okay. Practical analytics, Dave Cameron? 
Sure. We're not going to discuss broadband? No, not at length. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, so much of uh, what occurs at Fangraphs, right, has um, some footing, some foundation in economics. True? Sure. At least the stuff that I write anyway. Sure. Right. Yeah. And uh, I think it's probably fair to say that economics is a, it's a sort of behavioral science. Is that also fair? Yeah. Right. Um, and when we discuss the behavioral sciences, um, one sort of um, category we are, uh, which we arrive uh, concerns cognitive biases. Sure. Does that seem? Does all this seem fair so far? Yeah, I don't disagree with anything you've said. Yeah. So this is a simple addition of practical analytics, right? Uh, I want you merely to tell me, tell listeners uh, of what cognitive bias you are most frequently a victim. Uh, huh. That's an interesting question. And so, I suppose the, the and I suppose the follow up would be: Does your knowledge does the knowledge help you at all, or is it just so uh, is this something that's so hardwired into you or to anyone uh, that it's impossible to escape it? I mean, so I think the one that is probably the most common, mm-hmm. uh, and not just probably for me, but for everybody, is, is confirmation bias. Okay. So we tend to see evidence of things we previously believed to be true and ignore evidence of things that go contrary to what we believe. Uh, and this doesn't just show up in like our beliefs, like, right? So like there's a pretty well known, um, kind of factoid where if you happen to purchase a red car, like you'll start seeing red cars everywhere. <laughs> like you'll just be like, oh, look at everyone else has a red car too, or a blue car, or whatever. Like uh, you start noticing things that align with what you did, and so, uh, you know, I think we see a lot of people um, say, oh man, I really think that you know Andrew McCutcheon is uh, is going to bounce back from the slump that he's currently in, and then Andrew McCutcheon goes like you know three for four with a couple of home runs. They're like, that's it, the slump is over. Andrew McCutcheon has bounced back or is is uh, trending upwards just like I thought he would um, because that was their preconceived idea and now they have some data that would support that idea and so they react overly strongly or we all react overly strongly to to evidence that confirms what we what we originally believed and we discard evidence that kind of would uh, suggest that we're wrong right and so can you uh, can you remember a time recently when you were fell victim to confirmation bias? Or is it, again, is it one of those situations where <laughs> you are under the spell, you can't essentially peek around your own biases, or it's hard to? I mean, I think we, so we can be aware of the fact that confirmation bias exists and try to not fall into that trap, but it's really hard, right? Like, uh, so, you know, maybe this year you could use, like, the Arizona Diamondbacks as an example. Like, we didn't think the Diamondbacks were going to be that good this year, and we thought a lot of their moves over the winter were kind of crazy. And this year, the Arizona Diamondbacks have not been that good, and they're not really contenders. And so you look at their season and be like, man, we, we saw this coming. We knew they were going to, but we didn't actually know. We can't predict the future. Uh, you know, there's lots of things we said that we thought were going to happen that aren't happening, and, and things that we said weren't going to happen that are happening. And so I think we, we have to be aware of the fact that just because things happen that we thought were going to happen doesn't mean we had some kind of special special knowledge. And I think with regard to Arizona in particular, the, their baseball club, not the state, uh, they're not necessarily bad in the precise way uh, one might have thought before the season began. 
Right. We thought that their depth was going to struggle and that Granke and Pollock and, and Goldschmidt would carry uh, a team that just didn't have enough good role players. Really, Granke hasn't been that great, uh, at least not as good as he has previously. Shelby Miller's been atrocious, and A.J. Pollock's been hurt. So <laughs> they've been carried to almost 500 level by, like, Jake Lamb and, uh, you know, Chris Owings and Gene Segura and, like, guys that we didn't put a lot of faith in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is uh, the amount that one doesn't know is is much larger than the amount one does know. For sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, we tend to overestimate what we know when things happen that align with what we thought were going to happen. We're like, oh, we knew that, but we didn't actually know that. The, um, do you think men are silly? Just men generally? Sure. I mean, I, I, not just men, but yes. I don't, <laughs> men are silly, among other silly people. Yeah, yeah. The confidence, I, uh, actually, before we went to, you and I went to a Mets game, but before that I was spending time with David Appleman in Paul Swyden, and I was floating this hypothesis to them. Well, not in the form of a question. I was suggesting that men are silly, and uh, because they, they, um, there are many men. So there's a large subsection of men who appear to possess unearned confidence. Yeah, that's uh, true. And uh, I, and there happened to be three of them sitting next to us, and they were just <laughs> saying they were just making statements that they regarded as fact, which were well, perhaps they were facts, but they also could have just as easily been fatuous. I don't know. Fatuous. That's a fun word. Yeah, I think you know, the, it may not have been used correctly in this particular case. Let's uh, we'll have our um, we'll have our uh, checker, we'll have our checker, we'll have our producer look at it. Uh, we, we have we have a checker. We, um, yeah, I didn't tell you about that on the payroll though. Hey, listen, uh, let me ask you a question. This is um. Uh, this is not about Andrew McCutcheon, although we will discuss Andrew McCutcheon, possible trade rumors soon, uh, maybe Jose Reyes soon. Uh, this is uh, this is a question regarding a broadcast I heard yesterday of the Portland Sea Dogs game. They were playing the Reading Fighting Fighting Fills, perhaps. Yeah, Double that sounds a. like something you'd watch. Yeah, no, no, listening to listening to <laughs> radio even, broadcast. Even better. Yes. So here's the strange thing about the. Or what I thought was a little bit strange about the um, Portland Sea Dogs double A team for the Boston Red Sox is that Nate Fryman is was their first baseman, or maybe he was oh. playing DH. He was their first baseman. What well, else? he was in the big leagues like last year. Right. So he was in the yeah he was in the big leagues. If not last year, then 2014, 2013. Yeah. Right. He was a Rule Five guy, I think. He's like giant, right? Like six, seven. Or something. He's a big person. Yeah, he's a big person. Yeah. And he hit a home run. He hit a big. Well. He hit a big home run. Six, seven guys in double A at 29 or however old yeah. he is. Okay, so that's, so, so yes, yeah, so this is sort of the bug of my question. We consider the Boston Red Sox, I guess, on par to, uh, to be a club that makes calculated decisions. If not always correct decisions, then at least there's some logic to them. Maybe. Okay. And, okay. Oh, this is, so this double A team is, has a lot of young talent, a lot of talent, talented young players. Uh, their first three batters are Yon Mankata, mm-hmm. who you know. Uh, yeah. You may not know Mauricio Dubon, uh, but he is a sort of underrated shortstop uh, who has a lot of – makes a lot of contact. He's promising for that reason. Does he make coffee in his spare time? Because he sounds like he would be like a world-class barista. You think Mauricio Dubon? Mauricio Dubon should make like a really fantastic latte. I think you, he could be. I, I believe he's from – Oh, actually, I think he's one of the people. He's from, nope. He's actually, I believe he, this could be quite wrong. I, there's a possibility he's from Guatemala, though. Oh. Uh, which country does actually produce quite a lot of good coffee, if I'm not That's mistaken. True. Yeah. Um, but he, I think he, he actually had an interesting history, because I believe he was also drafted. So I, I think he might have emigrated, immigrated from 
emigrated from, immigrated to, emigrated from Guatemala to the United States is what I think. Well, if there's anyone in, in Portland the, or, or uh, someone who's familiar with Mauricio de Bon yeah. who wants to ask him how how well he makes coffee, let us know. Yeah, and allow me to already correct myself. He was born in Sacramento. <laughs> Which is almost like Guatemala. <laughs> no, it's not at all. Yeah, I don't know why that, why that happened. Maybe he lived in Guatemala between. Maybe he, <laughs> maybe he knows where Guatemala is. Maybe he could identify it on a map. Right. And so the point is, there's Dubon, there's Makata Dubon, and then the third batter is Andrew Benatendi. Oh, he's pretty good. He's, yeah, he's really good. I think he's, you know. When we were in Staten Island, I was talking to the, uh, Michael Hawley, the, the person who put on the event in Staten Island, and I was asking him because their ballpark is like right on the water. And I said, hey, have you ever seen anybody hit, like, get a splash hit, like hit it over the fence and there's like a walking trail behind the fence? So it's like a, you know, a little bit of a distance between the outfield fence and the water. And he said, yeah, Andrew Benintendi did it twice. Okay, right. As a visiting player, should be. Yeah, right. <laughs> as the only guy he's seen do it is a guy who didn't play for the Staten Island Yankees. Right, and who did it twice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, right. So Andrew Benteni looks promising. So yeah. you have you have players like that. We would describe. I mean, at least two of those guys I just mentioned as like legitimate top 100 prospects, and the Dubon is sort of falls more of the you know under the uh, category. Your, of, your kind of prospect. Yeah, sure, but but top uh, 100 Stuli guy. Yeah, it, but in, in interesting in his own right. And then you pair these these players with Nate Fryman, mm-hmm. who is is 29. Yeah. And and you would think that his his chances of you know cobbling together a career in the major leagues are probably not great at this point. Yeah, but he had his shot. Right, and it seems like he probably wants to play still, and the Red Sox are willing to employ him, they, but they don't employ him at AAA. They have him at AA. Now, I was thinking, here's, a, here's a, a hypothesis I have. I would like you to review it, though, because you, you use reason more than I do. Mm. It, usually when you have prospects in your system, unless it's, uh, you know, with few exceptions, you want them to be working at the position, at a position, you know, they would sort of represent the, Furthest in the in the challenging end of the defensive spectrum, right? So you don't necessarily sure. have a your low your minor league teams flooded with first base types, and so you right. say, well, who should we put there if we don't necessarily want to put a top prospect there? Well, we could put a lower level prospect there, or we could put someone who we think is a good guy mm-hmm. and would have a good influence on the clubhouse, right? And provide some sort of stability that way. And so I'm wondering... The, the Crash you, Davis role. Right. Do you think there's any anything reasonable about that hypothesis? Yeah. I think those are the those are the main reasons that teams employ guys like Nate Fryman and Double A is uh, they basically want someone who has, you know, I don't know anything about Nate Fryman specifically, but someone with good character who will, you know, not go out partying with their young talents and will convince them to show up to the park early and take extra BP and put on a good example. And I mean, that's definitely one of the primary traits that teams look for when they're looking to fill out their minor league rosters with veterans who, you know, they know aren't going to give them big league value, but if they can, you know, improve their prospects' chances of making it by a percentage point or two are definitely worth paying to be around. Do you think that there is a higher percentage of those sorts of guys who are playing like these older sorts? If you if you were to look at say Double A, yeah, by um, by position relative to age, do you think you would find the oldest players playing first base and say like left field? Uh, well, I mean DH too, probably. Right? Sure, 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 sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I mean, right. The positions that don't require much athleticism are where you're generally going to stick an older guy who. Uh, probably is around simply for his character. 
Okay. Yeah. And how do you think that they assembled that? I mean, they, I'm sure. I mean, it doesn't. I don't think Nate Fryman had ever played previously for the in the Red Sox organization. Although I do happen to know that he's from Massachusetts. Uh, so perhaps that that has some influence on it. What other decisions would go into it? Do you think? And how how is that information? I guess how is that information cobbled together? I mean, everyone in baseball they're not necessarily like sharing all their information, but there's enough uh, overflow where you know uh, scouts change organizations, coaches change organizations, players change organizations. That it's there's a, a repository of available pe- people that uh, an organization can go to when they're doing background on a guy and say, hey. You know, what's this kind of, what's this guy like? And, you know, people who played with him or been around him on a regular basis can be like, oh yeah, that's one of the good guys. You know, works hard, shows up early, stays late. Or they say, like, yeah, he, he likes his drugs and his women and, you know, maybe not going to be the best influence. So, uh, you know, I think that they essentially rely on a network of, uh, not necessarily sources, but people that they just have relationships with where they can, they can reach out and be like, hey, we're thinking about signing this guy to a minor league contract. What do you know about him? Right. Okay, this is what I wanted to know. I just thought I was curious. He's an older guy, playing double A, but he seems yep. to probably a reason. All right, that's done. That's done. File that away. Okay, I will never think about Nate Priman again. No, you don't have to probably. Uh, here's something that happened uh, over the weekend. Jose Fernandez beat a very talented Chicago Cubs team. Yeah, Jose and, Fernandez, also very talented. Yeah, also very talented, right. He had, I think, uh, 13 strikeouts in that game against uh, – Almost, you know, he brought, he's, essentially he struck out 50% of the batters he faced. That's good. The team in the Cubs, I think, that have recorded among the fewest strikeouts. Does that sound right? As batters? Sure, that could be true. Yeah, it's Benzo Riss doesn't strike out a lot. Anthony Rizzo for power oh, hitting yeah. first baseman right. hardly ever strikes out. Yeah, sure. Chris so Bryant strikes out less than he used to. Let's work, a, <laughs> let's work under that theory. So anyway, he had a good performance is the point. Exactly. And I think that that brought his, uh, it was hard for him to do that and also, not to hear, especially if you're watching the broadcast, about Jose Fernandez's success at home. I think that made him maybe 24 and 1 at home. Mm, okay. Turns, turns win loss record at home. This is definitely a Fangraphs approved stat. No, it's not. But, um, here's, here's the question that I want to get. Obviously, win loss record is not necessarily a great way to, uh, certainly not a perfect way to judge a, a pitcher's performances. Um, I mean, it tells you something about them. It's kind of a convoluted something, but it tells you something. Uh, but what it did, it did lead me to believe, or did me, uh, uh, cause me to revisit the idea of home field advantage. Okay. Uh, and have that in my head. I know some basic things about it, but I don't know if I've asked you recently what, uh, what the current state of, um, of home field advantage and especially what we understand about it. The, the thing that I remember is that I think home teams in the majors win about 54% of their games. Right, and that, so in current state, like I don't know what the actual split is this year, okay, uh, right. but I think we can uh, safely assume that there hasn't been a dramatic change in home field advantage in baseball uh, recently, where we would throw that number away and be like, oh, now it's seventy percent or something. It's like maybe it's fifty-three, maybe it's fifty-five, but it's going to be something in that same range where uh, home field advantage is a small advantage in baseball. It's not, uh, it's not like in football or basketball where it's a dramatic shift, but it, there is a little bit of an advantage there. And why? Is it smaller, do we know, than it is in, in uh, basketball or football? So we don't know for sure. There's actually been a decent amount of papers on home field advantage and books written about home field advantage or, or books about sports analytics with significant chapters devoted to this. Uh, one of the most popular theories is just simply crowd noise, right? So in football and basketball, you can 
make a lot of noise at the time that your the opponent is trying to you know either make a decision or call a play or uh, do something to actually interrupt their communication. So if you're a football player and you're you know the quarterback you're trying to call an audible and seventy thousand people are stomping up and down on the seats and your wide receiver can't hear you and he runs the wrong route, you know that's good. <laughs> In baseball. You know, they use signs. <laughs> so you're like, the crowd can cheer as loud as they want, but the catcher can still tell Clayton Kershaw, hey, throw a curveball. And Clayton Kershaw's still gonna know, I don't know, I should throw a curveball. So, you can't interrupt the communication of, uh, baseball players as well as you can football and basketball players, uh, who are a little bit, rely a little bit more on vocal cues. Um, there's also some suggestion that maybe umpires in baseball are less uh responsive to crowd changes and crowd noises than in football and basketball and um that could be that could be an effect. No one really knows the exact cause and effect of every single variable, but it seems like crowd noise is probably the most uh different uh or the effects of crowd noise is the most different from the sports. And travel and fatigue, how do those factor uh, in? Yeah, so I mean baseball teams uh travel more throughout a year because they you know, have a longer season, but they also uh, spend several days in the same city, which basketball teams don't do. They're flying every day, uh, basically like fly in, fly out, play a game. Yeah. Uh, football teams, you know, they travel <laughs> what eight eight times a year or ten times a year, including uh, the pre- the preseason, and they only fly in for like you know uh, a Thursday and stay through a Sunday, and then they leave and go get a few days at home. So uh, the travel's remarkably different, but uh, you would think that. Given the, the different travel schedules between the NFL and the NBA, uh, and how different they are for Major League Baseball, there's not necessarily a, a clear alignment that says, oh, okay, travel's a much bigger deal, uh, that really drives home field advantage in those sports because, uh, the, the travel in the NFL and the NBA are not, nothing alike at all. But you just said Major League teams travel about eight to ten times a year. No, not NFL teams. Oh, NFL teams, I see, yeah. So, yeah. so how, because I think I always, you're, I'm always aware when I, when there's a long road trip, you know, like if there's an East Coast team that goes to the West Coast, say we're going right. to go on a West Coast road trip, and those usually last a bit, Couple a while. Weeks. Yeah. Um, how long though? Hey, how many road trips do you suppose that teams go on? Well, so you're gonna, obviously going to play 81 road games, right? Yeah. So uh, if you say each series is approximately three or four games, that means you're looking at something like 25 series probably, sure. 25 road series, something in that range. Maybe it's like 26 or 27, but something in there. Uh, and then you break it up into where each series is, or each road trip is usually three series long. Uh, I think that's kind of normal. Maybe sometimes it's two. It's almost so never like, four. So, so like- you're... Four to yeah, nine games or something, like five to nine games? Yeah, I mean, right, there are like 12-game road trips, but those are pretty unusual. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think you're looking at like maybe three three-game series, and then you come home. So if you're going to do, what, 27 series, and they're each three series long, so you're looking at like nine nine or ten road trips a year? Yeah that's, yeah, that's what you said. So it's actually, it comes out maybe to roughly the same True. as it does for a football team. Good point. I had actually never never done the math on that before. You, and then we, for all we know, we could be doing the math very wrong. Yeah, yeah, it's true. But do you know who do you know who does do the math? Oh, I'm sure like the travel coordinator for a team does the math. <laughs> He's probably pretty aware, or she is probably pretty aware, or they if there are two people. Anyway, uh, you know who else is always more acutely aware of the schedule, at least than I am as a viewer, it are the announcers. Oh yeah, and, and beat writers. Announcers and beat writers know everything in advance, like months, months out. Yes, they have a, a great sense of where they'll be, where they'll yeah. be having dinner, yeah. the hotel, uh, yeah. and I suppose it makes sense, right? Because this is the livelihood. 
and uh, you know, the, I guess the, to some degree, their happiness is dependent upon how, the, how they conduct themselves there. But yeah, I was yeah. watching. I forget like a, a Mets game, and they're like, "Oh yeah, that series in late July, like you know, it'll be here. It's this time. It'll be like the third stop on our road trip." It was pretty precise the knowledge of it. Yeah, I think with beat writers too, like a lot of it, uh, their their um, seniority depends on which trips they have to go on. So I think like you know. Uh, most newspapers uh, have like a kind of a junior correspondent who's like uh, you know more recent and more young and doesn't necessarily get to pick which trips he goes on and that guy usually ends up going to like Detroit and uh, Texas in July <laughs> like and then this more senior beat writer is like yeah I'll take the San Francisco trip and the New York trip and like all the all the trips to places you want to go uh, but then you know the the young guy who's like uh, you know a couple of years out of journalism school uh, he's heading to the Midwest. No. Midwest. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, guys. <laughs> uh, very good. Uh, hey, here's a, well, no, uh, only a semi-related question, but you mentioned we were talking about the lower run, uh, the um, lower home field uh, advantage, uh, winning percentage for, for home teams in the majors, uh, and it made me it forced me to think at some point along the way about uh, Pythagorean records, uh, records, etc. Uh, does the lower run environment from the last couple of years, yeah, does that more tightly compact or spread apart, uh, essentially the projected win percentages of all the teams. Yeah, the lower the run environment, the more variability you have that isn't necessarily due to skill. So if you if like every game is you know two to one or something, then uh, you can have single play outcomes or like a bad call or yeah. uh, you know a bad bounce will have a larger impact on the outcome of the game because like say you know a guy hits a foul ball. Uh, that's ruled fair and it turns out to be a home run, well, that just accounted for 33% of all the runs scored. Uh, that's going to be a huge influence on the, on the outcome of the game, whereas it's like, you know, the final score is going to be 15 to 12, uh, then that one home run isn't going to be nearly as, as large a proportion of the run scoring. So the lower the run environment, the more variance there is, uh, the, the less the talent necessarily comes into play. Um, so in terms of what that does to home field advantage, I, I don't know 100% sure, but I would say that the lower run environment would lead to uh, depressed, uh, slightly depressed home field advantage because you would have more variance driving the results. Okay, and do teams tend to... So with the lower run environment across all the leagues, no, not, not considering home field advantage, just general general record, does it compress all the teams towards 81 wins or does it spread them further apart from it? So more variance is going to compress it. It's harder to sustain an advantage if you're a true talent 95-win team, but you're playing in an environment that uh, you know gives more weight to luck and less weight to talent. It's going to be harder for you to actually win those 95 games. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> last week on the program... Uh, we discussed the well. You had written. You had just just written a post. Uh, I think, or maybe you were about to write a post about Danny Valencia, future yeah. Met. Yeah. And I had asked you at that point. I said, well, there appeared to be there appears to be some stirring that Jose Reyes could uh, have a reunion with the Mets. Yeah. And you were dubious about the no, possibility. No, I mean, I didn't. I didn't. Sus- I wasn't dubious that it would happen. I was dubious that they should do it. Oh, okay. And I <laughs> remain dubious that they should do it, even after they did it. Well, so yes, they have. They've done it. Yeah, they signed Jose Reyes for reasons that I haven't seen anybody rationally explain. Mm. Well, I can't uh, speak for anyone, I, but I do know that Terry Collins, manager of the New York Mets, has already announced that Jose Reyes will bat, will bat leadoff when he re- returns. So silly. Yeah, so it's I guess it is silly, right? Yeah, it's it's silly. Like the the the, the Mets have a better 
player in their minor league system named Dilson Herrera, who has basically the same skill set as Jose Reyes. Right. Not exactly, but, you know, they're similar kinds of players. Uh, Herrera's, what, 22 and has some potential and could turn into, like, a quality piece for the Mets. Uh, Dilson Herrera did not choke his wife over the winter. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I just, I don't understand why when faced with the choice of, like, would I rather play the young guy with promise who's doing well in AAA, or would I rather reacquire a guy with PR baggage who's at the end of his career and didn't even hit that well in Colorado, uh, I'm going to go with the latter. Do you think that to spite you, Jose Reyes will... That was certainly possible. I, you know, I've said a lot of things that have turned out to be wrong, so maybe Jose Reyes is going to hit 380 the rest of the season and carry the Mets into the playoffs. But mm. more likely, Jose Reyes is just not a very good baseball player anymore, and the Mets signed him because he was free. Yeah. What was what is the difference? Because so I just uh, taking a quick look at his profile and fangraphs here. It seems as though he has never uh, his strikeout rates have been uh, remarkably consistent year to year. Yeah, he makes contact. He makes a lot of contact. He's just I assume it's just the quality of that contact at this point. It's, it's not very good anymore. Yeah. And then also, and he's uh, also not not nearly as fast as he used to be. Right. And I guess what the question of his uh, defense has been one that's been asked. Right. The Blue Jays really hated his defense at shortstop, which is one of the main reasons they traded for Troy Tulowitzki, is they wanted a defensive upgrade up the middle. Okay. What's Tulo doing right now? I'm not. That's not a. That's not a rhetorical question. I'm actually just. We're probably getting lunch, right? Asking for an update. Yeah. yeah I guess I, maybe having like a pregame meal. Okay. Yeah. Seems or stretching. Uh, that's the thing that Troy Tulowitzki should probably do. Hopefully, yeah. Has he yeah. stayed healthy this year for the most part? Kind of. He did go on the disabled list, but it wasn't like a. It wasn't a hamstring issue. It was a, I don't know, a hand or something. He had something, something broke. Okay. We're really, uh, really getting through this confirmation bias. Nate Freeman. <laughs> Look at this. Uh, Astros recall, promote, give a debut to AJ Reed. Yeah. They called him up. It started off that uh, Tyler White was their first baseman. Uh, yeah. He, he had a really good, like, two weeks. Right. Very, uh, very strong minor league track record offensively. Uh, but at, at the same time, not what you would call a classic prospect. And I would I would don't even know that you could say his his final league track record was that strong. He drew a lot of walks and didn't have a ton of power and I think it was uh uh August Fagerstrom and Chris Mitchell and some others wrote early in the season, like that kind of prospect generally fails. Yeah. Yeah, well he uh, he ended up doing that. Although not necessarily in the way you would totally expect, I guess, because uh he had above average isolated power figure uh, not terrible walk and strikeout numbers, but uh, his his batted ball profile was not was not excellent. Too yeah, cool. and as a is like a DH basically, like a, a non uh, a bat only player needs to hit a lot in order right. to be valuable, and he he didn't hit a lot. Uh, signs do point to the fact that AJ Reed is probably a bat only player as well. Uh, yeah, I mean I think like Reed is expected to be able to play like a reasonable first base, probably mm-hmm. not a DH, but mm-hmm. uh, not a not the middle player certainly. Right, uh, and as a um, I was compelled to note at some point he he was the well I'm not going to remember precisely the fact but it was something to the point of like he was the latest selected the latest selected Golden Spikes winner um, in the draft since Kip Buchnight I believe I mean he went 42nd overall that's not that low no but uh, all the Golden Spikes guys get get picked before him really yeah. So, because the Golden Spikes, I mean, maybe they've changed it, but it used to go to just like a good college player, kind yeah, of like the Heisman think, Trophy, right? Yeah, I think there's a little bit more emphasis now, maybe on um, um, prospect status. Yeah, I think there's, I think there's something to that. Yeah, I, I mean, I would have to guess because it would seem to be, as you're noting, a real 
um, a real coincidence if uh, all the co- best college players were automatically um, going, you know, going on and having uh, being selected, you know, being regarded as as a very strong college, um, major league prospects as well. Yes, I can tell you. I can't tell you much, Dave Cameron, <laughs> but I can tell can you. Can you tell me that AJ Reed's from Guatemala? <laughs> no, I, I can't. I cannot confirm. Yes, 2000. Kip Booknight selected uh, 394th overall. Yeah, Everyone not- since then, Dave Cameron has been selected either 13 or closer to one than that huh, within the okay. top 15 picks. Well, yeah, I believe I believe I'm not lying to you when I say that. Maybe they changed the uh, the Golden Spikes Award 15 years ago, and I just didn't notice because because I don't care about. Google. Yeah, I mean here here are the recent picks. Uh, 2012, Mike Zunino. I mean, oh yeah. I mean, uh, Chris Bryant was the year was 2013. Yeah, he's uh, good. Trevor Bauer in uh, 2011, Bryce Harper before that, Steven Strasburg, Buster Posey, David Price, Tim Lincecum. These are names I've heard of. Yeah, Alex Gordon, Jared yeah. Weaver. Okay. Ricky Weeks, you know, I mean, yeah. he was a pretty good major leaguer for, yeah, for a while. for a while. And then uh, Khalil Green before that. He was the 13th yeah. pick. Uh, Mark Pryor was second over. And then you get to 2000, and it's uh, Kip Booknight. Okay. Played for South Carolina. Do you remember, uh, this might be before you started following college baseball, or actually, we might have actually talked about this before. Do you remember a guy named, uh, Hawaiian Punch-Out? Was his nickname? He pushed at the University of Hawaii. Shane, something or other? Uh, vaguely, yeah, vaguely, yeah. yeah. He, I think he might have won, uh, Golden Spikes Award and not been a high draft pick because he was like 5'6". Uh, yeah, I don't, there's no one from Hawaii that I can find. Let's see. Ho- Hawaiian. Hawaiian Punch-Out. It was like the best nickname in college sports history, basically. Punch-Out Baseball. Why <laughs> punch out baseball? This is really a high quality. High Shane Comine? Shane, Shane Comine? Comine. Comine, yeah. okay, I see. I don't yeah. know if it's Comine or Comine. Yeah, Shane Com, whatever his last name is. Yeah, there he is, yeah. 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 Did he win a Golden Spikes Award? I don't think he did, no. Okay. Well, he was a good college player. He might have won that. There is another award that's like best, uh, you know, best professional, whatever. Best professional. Best professional but, uh, sorry, sorry, best yeah, college player. You're never going to win that award, Carson. Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> No, I don't know. Uh, I don't think he did that. Okay. Well, anyway, it's always fun to talk about the Hawaiian punch out. Yeah. It is. We really need like another good pitcher from Hawaii so we can resurrect that nickname. I believe, uh, who are the best players from Hawaii now? Uh, Shane Victorino, of course, is quite good. Yeah. Uh, Benny Do they only Young. produce players named Shane? <clears throat> Might be a popular name in Hawaii. I don't know. Okay. Now, do you know if Kamine was, uh, I think Victorino had an interesting, um, Sort of ethnic background, didn't he? He was uh, isn't he Filipino, part Filipino? That sounds correct. Yeah. Um, someone else. There's a uh... maybe part Guatemalan. <laughs> You're not gonna forget that, are you? I'm not. It was really <laughs> Guatemalan, Sacramento. I just that's gonna. I'm gonna remember that one for a long time, probably. Uh, there was a pitcher, I think, in last year's draft. Uh, whose name is? Oh yeah, Cody Medeiros. I think is his name. Oh yeah. Yeah, I think he was. Uh, he was. He's from Hawaii. Okay. Well, there you go. We've we've found a Hawaiian player not named Shane. Yeah. Well, also Benny Agbiani is not named Shane. Uh, yeah. Those two. Congratulations. Yep. Hey, you fulfilled your obligation, Dave. <laughs> yeah, you're, you want to end this conversation as quickly as possible now. A little bit right now. All right. A little bit right now. A couple. Uh, there is multiple pieces of the Astros on the site today, uh, because of AJ Reed and then also because of their uh, their ascension back up the uh, playoff probability graphs. 
and also two posts roughly dedicated to the Pirates, or sort of, to Andrew McCutcheon, etc., because you looked at Andrew McCutcheon. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be traded, you say. Uh, and then uh, Eno Saris published a piece on Austin Meadows, who yeah. I think is, uh, he's the prospect at now at AAA, who's made conversation regarding, who's probably accelerated the conversations regarding Andrew McCutcheon. Yeah. But don't trade Andrew McCutcheon. Is don't, the, don't trade Andrew McCutcheon. Don't trade Andrew McCutcheon. Not, not right now, anyway. You they're only, trade him they're only point. four games out of the wild card. Yeah, but they're behind four teams, and oh, yeah. like when you're like at this point in the first half of the season, a lot of like mediocre to not contending teams can be like, we're not that far out because we only played half the season. But then like if they continue to play <laughs> not as well as the rest of the teams, they'll end up like ten or eleven games out. So uh, you don't necessarily want to just use games back of the wild card when there's a whole bunch of teams ahead of you that are all better than you. Yeah, uh, all I hear is confirmation bias. Dave yeah, Cameron. well, that's that's what we have. All right. Well, Dave, thank you for your contribution today. You're welcome. That has been Managing Editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.